Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, or if you're here for the first time, this is not really a current issue show. Each topic that we discuss each week is not always relevant to the news we're watching or reading on our phones. Today, though, we're going to look at two of the minor prophets, Obadiah and Nahum, two voices we never hear from in the readings we hear and read in church. Months ago, as I was planning this whole series out, I slotted these two prophets right here, this week, with no knowledge of what would be taking place in Israel and Palestine right now. What's happening over there is awful. And here we have two voices that rejoice at God destroying enemies, that call for and laud religious violence. Two voices that can fan the flames of that religious violence. And we tend to ignore these voices because of that, because of the language Nahum and Obadiah use. And we miss the larger points that they're making. It's been hard this week to sit with these voices, to hear what they have to say, and to wonder all the ways that we've interpreted what they've said. And I debated whether or not to talk about them this week or to punt them to another week and talk about something else, something easier. But it felt like the wrong choice to move them around and move them to another week and then just come back to them later when what they have to say and I think what they mean can help us out with making sense of what's happening in the world around us. So I wanted to give you that heads up because I know the news is hard to hear and it's difficult to see and so if you're not up for that today then check out a different episode of God Knows Where and come back when you're ready. Don't forget, you can always find the show on Instagram and Facebook, and you can leave me a message there if you want to use God Knows Where in your small groups or your Sunday school classes. I'm still excited to be working with you on bringing that to reality so that you can use these episodes and these series that we do in ways with your own communities. I'd love to work with you on that, so drop me a message if that's something you'd be interested in. Thanks for listening today. I hope you have a great day wherever you are, and I hope that you enjoy today's episode, Choosing Sides. A reading from Nahum 3. Then all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, water her wall? Ethiopia was her strength, Egypt too, and without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile, she went into captivity. Even her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Lots were cast for her nobles, and her dignitaries were bound in fetters. You will also be drunken, you will go into hiding, you will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops, their women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your foes. Fire has devoured the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Trample the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust sheds its skin and flies away. Your guards are like grasshoppers, your scribes like swarms of locusts settling on the fences on a cold day. When the sun rises, they fly away. 
No one knows where they have gone. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. There's no assuaging your hurt. Your wound is mortal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For who has ever escaped your endless cruelty? And a reading from Obadiah. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, all the nations around you shall drink. They shall drink and gulp down, and shall be as though they had never been. These two prophets, Obadiah and Nahum, are the ones that made me want to lead my first Bible study as a pastor on overlooked and avoided scriptures. Seriously, this is what I picked for that first Bible study. Explains a lot, doesn't it? I must have forgotten what they were about because when I read them in preparation, I kept saying to myself, I have no idea how these made it into the canon. They are violent and unyielding. They are filled with the thoughts that shape our understanding of the ubiquitous Old Testament God. And on their face, they have nothing to do with the God we come to understand through Jesus in the Gospels. There's good news and there's bad news here. The good news is, when we dig past that violent language and the promise of destruction and the seeming thirst for blood that God has within their pages, we find a message that, while it isn't easy to hear, it's one we can't ignore, especially those of us reading them today. It's hard to figure out where we stand with Nahum and Obadiah. It's hard to want to find ourselves within their pages. But figuring out where we are in them helps us figure out how better to follow God. The bad news is we're really bad at knowing where we stand. We're really bad at figuring out where we are. If you've been close to the internet recently, you've no doubt seen David Beckham calling out his wife, Victoria, for claiming that she grew up working class, that she is working class. He asks her, What kind of car did your dad drive you to school in when you were growing up? And she doesn't answer, but finally she does. She comes around to answer that he drove her to school in a Rolls Royce. So that stage name Posh Spice fits. But she's not alone. I'm not here to dump on Victoria Beckham. We're all about to get a full onslaught of origin stories from candidates running for president and other offices and all of them are going to tell us about the trials they overcame and the values that guided them out of where they were to where they are now, whether or not they ever had anything to overcome. And it's not just politicians either. We all do this. Garrison Keillor made an entire career out of the story of Lake Wobegon, that mythical place where all the women are beautiful and all the men are handsome and all the children are above average. And more than half of us Americans believe ourselves to be middle class. We look at where we are, and we know there are places we still hope to be, and there's places we hope to never find ourselves in, and so we plant ourselves firmly in the middle when we're asked what class we're in. Whether we're making $40,000 a year or $200,000 a year, it doesn't matter. Most of us say we're in the middle. According to Gallup, also, interestingly enough, there's a similar percentage of those earning more 
than $250,000 a year who believe that they are lower class and who earn less than $20,000 a year who believe themselves to be upper class. We are terrible at accurately positioning ourselves based off our demographics or our income or our address or whatever because the point we orient ourselves around is never where we are, but it's where we'd rather be. And in some cases, it's where we're glad we're not. We position ourselves based off of the other places we know we could be. That there's always someone out there doing better than us and someone doing worse. Whatever that means. There's always somewhere else we could be. And I don't think our poor judgment of where we are socioeconomically or in other ways, I don't think our poor judgment is always harmful. But it is harmful, this poor judgment of where we are and where we find ourselves. It is harmful when we come to our scriptures, when we can't accurately see where we fit into the stories in our scriptures, we tend to locate ourselves on God's side. Really, wherever God is doing good by somebody or for somebody or with somebody, that's where we want to be. But it's hard to know what that side is all the time. Because we come to these two little books, Obadiah and Nahum, with their promises of the destruction of Israel's enemies and the preservation of that remnant of Israel that remained after exile. And we can, seeing ourselves as God's children too, position ourselves squarely with the ancestors of Jacob and Joseph and Samuel and David and Ruth and Naomi and Esther and rejoice that God will destroy our enemies. And then we can turn a few pages to the right. And we can find Jesus tell us an entirely different message. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. When we read Obadiah and Nahum side by side with the Gospels, we don't know what to do. Is God's side the enemy-smiting side of the prophets? Or is God's side the loving side, the loving enemies? side of Jesus? Are we on God's side when our enemies are destroyed or when we choose to love those who persecute us? Whose side is God on? Whose side are we on? These things, these stories, these people, these messages, these voices, they don't square up. In fact, it seems pretty clear as though these prophets and Jesus are in opposition. So something's got to give. Usually what gives is our desire to read Obadiah and Nahum, to admit that these violent books with violent messages are a part of our tradition. We say that's just the Old Testament God being the Old Testament God, and Jesus is different, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. But we recall these books, or at least we recall their messages and the the voices and the imagery that they share when conflict arises around the world, especially in the Middle East. We cite the image of God here and the promise of the destruction of Israel's enemies as fodder for choosing a side. To make the messages of Obadiah and Nahum make sense together with Matthew and Mark and Luke and John within the compilation of books that is our Bible, we have to do something we don't do. We have to read them. 
And we have to do something that we're bad at. We have to figure out where we are in their midst, where we are in the stories that they tell. Because when we read them and we find ourselves within them, we see that they make a very clear point that we miss when we ignore them, when we assume that they prove that God is on our side. I am indebted to Tim Mackey at The Bible Project for making that clear to me. If you've not watched any of The Bible Project's animated whiteboard videos of the various books of the Bible, check them out. There are years worth of seminary classes boiled down into five to ten minute videos. They're great. In the videos about Nahum and Obadiah, Mackie makes the point that while Nahum writes to Nineveh, that city that God sent Jonah to, and Obadiah rails against Edom, the nation of Jacob's brother Esau, they are portraying Nineveh as an example of how God won't allow violent empires to endure and Edom's pride and downfall as the pride and downfall of all nations. These aren't just warnings against the empires and nations that Nahum and Obadiah knew about. These are warnings against the very idea of empire itself. These are warnings to all empires at all times, that if they stand against and oppress and subjugate God's children, any of God's children, At any point in time, God will stand on the side of the oppressed and subjugated, the downtrodden and those living in the shadows of the empire's reach. God stands with every parent who has lost a child, every family whose house and livelihood has been destroyed, every person who's wanted nothing to do with war and yet has been forced to deal with its consequences. God never stands on the side of the empire. Never. So where do we stand? Do we find ourselves on God's side with the oppressed and the downtrodden, or do we find ourselves across the way in the lap of the empire? That's a difficult question to ask. It's a difficult question to answer. It's a difficult question for those of us who live in the richest country in the history of the world, whose economy and entertainment and language and currency and military, you name it, it's all stretched its influence across the world. And that expansiveness has made life incredibly easy for a lot of us. It's made life incredibly easy for me. It's allowed us to avoid or ignore the realities for so many people around the world. It's allowed us to accept freely the salvation we find in faith in Christ without considering the considerable costs and discomforts that come with following him there. We want to be where God is on our side. We want God to come and rescue us when we are in need when we are being persecuted. We want God to do what Nahum and Obadiah call for when we locate ourselves in Judah, in the communities who've been displaced and dismantled by empires. But not if we're walking safely in the streets those empires built, not if we're protected by the armies they've amassed or unaware or unconcerned with how empires maintain the position and possessions they hold. 
If we're there, then we want the God who calls on us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. We want to be on that God's side. But if we want God to be on our side, that means we have to be on God's side. We have to find ourselves where God is. And in Nahum and in Obadiah and in the Gospels and the whole of our scriptures, I think God stands on the side of those who have been harmed and held captive, outcast and dispossessed. I mean, standing against the ruthlessness of empires, then, now, and always. This is as true for what we are witnessing an ocean away today as it is for the red lines and the train tracks and the other markers that divide our own communities. This isn't always easy. It's not always clear. It's not always black and white. But as we navigate our societies and our cultures and our politics and our relationships, it's a question that we always must ask. Where are we? Whose side are we on? God will always be where God will be. God doesn't choose sides. God's side has always been with the powerless and the lost and the forgotten and the hurting. And if we read these stories and we figure out where we are within them, not based on where we want to be, but where we are, where the decisions and the choices we make and the privileges and positions we take, we can find ourselves needing to move in order to get to where God is. And if moving means staying close to God, then let's not be afraid to move. God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It'll mean the world to me and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, and your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.